Hi, this is Paul. Monday I released this video that I really struggled to to name. Those of you who are on the no wait, no, no ads section of the membership saw that it had different thumbnails and different names. And even after I posted it, I changed the name. I don't like doing that because I like a degree of continuity. I don't want people having difficulty follow it. But it was basically built on this essay by Peter Thiel where he looks at the Straussian moment. But what, what was interest of me was the description of the construction of the Enlightenment thinkers to try to get beyond this conversation about human nature. Because the Enlightenment thinkers saw that in many respects beneath a lot of the, the, the violence between religious communities were different assumptions about human nature. Now, I, I, I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't really know how accurate that is because the Protestants and the Roman Catholics shared a fundamentally Augustinian perspective on human nature, and that continues. Um, Louise Perry just did a question and answer Maybe maybe I'll play some of that. See, the problem with making these videos is I think, okay, I'm going to make this video about this, but then all these other things that I've been thinking about for a video sort of come wandering in and they sort of get mixed all together. So she does a Q&A and she only has one question. But what was interesting to me about this little video, it's just a little short, maybe... Now on her channel, she her Substack is her majority platform. And so even though usually on YouTube there's little short things, on the Substack there's longer ones. So maybe she answers more questions. I found this question particularly interesting because, of course, as a minister, I'm very interested in people's worldviews. Now, uh, before I went to Europe, just before I went to Europe, someone sent me this this woman, this video of a woman who gives this talk at a tech conference, which is basically a worldview talk. And I took it apart. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think she really appreciated it because someone sent it to her. It wasn't a very big video. And so uh, I, I've met Louise at a thing in the UK once. And uh, Louise, I am going to I am going to talk about your worldview. And I know that's a little, always a little dicey with people because our worldviews are close to us. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to be gentle. Because what, what I think Louise articulates here is a very common set of worldview assumptions. And this comes into the conversation about the Enlightenment with respect to human nature. Because again, the thesis of this Peter Thiel piece was, that, that wasn't actually the thesis of the piece, this was sort of a side point in the thesis that um, later he developed in the paper. But the argument was that Part of what Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke tried to do was sort of blur or sidestep deeper questions of human nature in order to just make the world go better and in a lot of different ways. Now, this I'm going to get the, the, the real video I'm going to get at is this debate between Steven Pinker and John Mearsheimer, which someone again sent to me today and said, have you seen this? And I watched some of it and I thought, first I saw who was in it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be very interesting. And sure enough, it is. Because, of course, Mearsheimer has all this idea about political realism. And Pinker has sort of this rationality, um, uto rational utopianism. And it, I, it's probably not fair to call him a utopian. But part of where that intersects with Louise's answer to this question the question begins with something that we've talked about on this channel a bit, the popularity of evolutionary psychology. And I've talked about that in our marriage crisis videos where this evolutionary psychology, if you think, if you think Augustinian theological anthropology is dark, there is a nihilism underneath evolutionary psychology that is darker still. And I don't think most people actually deal with this. Now, she sort of addresses it, but she sort of addresses it in a way that where the Enlightenment eventually went, because it sort of starts with Hobbes, and then at some point we begin saying things like, well, people are naturally good or basically good, and... Uh, not terribly well founded so 
let's let's see how the sound levels are in this thing. I assume it's a she, given the um, the ovary symbols. Yeah. I'm always watching the sound levels because it's really hard to get sound levels dialed in, especially if you don't edit, like I don't edit. So it's always on the fly trying to get the sound levels. And Louise tends to be a little uh, be a little soft. Her profile pic. Um, she asks. Given the almost total and rather dark explanation for all human behavior provided by evolutionary psychology, how do you find the positives in the human condition? So I do agree um, that evolutionary psychology is often uh, a very dark discipline to look into. And I have to say, I'm sometimes amazed by the sort of... uh, uh, cold-bloodedness of some evolutionary psychologists I'm um, I'm friends with who can just be uh, incredibly blunt and um, uh, and um, and you know this is if anywhere true of human sexuality because a lot of the picture we get from evolutionary psychology especially with respect to men and our avaricious um, sexual instincts are pretty grim for women seemingly unmoved i think um by talking about the very worst things that humans do to each other and why they might be adaptive right i mean that's the thing that's really disturbing are these are some of the worst things that we do to one another actually um crucial to our survival and again even the way we use the word adaptive adaptive is just a hair's breadth from necessary or successful or almost good for us even if we don't like it um i was it was let's see things jump around it's my adhd i caught this on tom holland's twitter stream today and it's a meme that i've i've done plenty on my channel um you know secular western ethic it's the old homer simpson being pulled up a hill by sherpas secular secular western ethics two thousand years of christian morality then he wakes up look how far i've climbed and i'm not even tired so part of what happens with this part of what happens with the the whole evolutionary psychology thing is that well, it's adaptive, but we're sort of embarrassed by it, and we're not sure how we feel with it. And of course, that sets up the whole sort of. I thought Sam really nailed uh, Brett Weinstein in that. There's sort of a, a gnostic dual god thing going on behind Brett Weinstein's could talk about these um, basically our, our genetics, which are made for assassination and we have to transcend over them with our higher nature. So you have sort of this, this demiurge that created the world or an insufficient God, and then maybe a higher moral God that didn't make the world, but sort of invites us to climb the ladder up to that God in terms of our behavior. But if you do so, you're going to have to deal with the fact that the world is this, this, this cruel, evolutionary, heartless world is adaptive. So one of the things that came across my Twitter feed today is this image of, I don't know what kind of bird this is, probably a stork. It's got three young, three hatchlings, and it maybe can't care for three. So um, I asked the group to meme it. I said, well, this is kind of me growing up in church because I couldn't sit still and be quiet, so mom would kick me out of the pew. Um, Out it goes. Bang. And 2016, that's a few years old already. So, uh, yeah, nature, red and tooth and claw. All right, I'll shut up now. Is it possible that we've only arrived here as um, modern people with our um, our modern kind of moral objections to all of these things because our ancestors did terrible things to one another, whether that be, you know, murder, uh, infanticide, enslaving other people and so forth? I mean, I suppose that the, um, the thing to remember always is uh, the naturalistic fallacy just because things are natural doesn't mean that we have to um, welcome them. We might resist them. I don't really know if I believe in God. <laughs> as as regular listeners will know, it's something that I wrestle with. I don't have a sort of confident faith. But I do instinctively believe in original sin, if that makes sense. 
in that I think that the idea... Use a different word besides original sin. <laughs> that we are deeply flawed and that acting well... So, so you've got some Augustinian anthropology in her there, let's say. Being good and moral is difficult and requires constant struggle. The Heidelberg Catechism says I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. I think that that is just like obviously true, um, as I see it. I, feel, I, I think that's instinctively, I, I feel that to be true. And that original sin, whether or not you want to frame it with the Genesis story, that original sin is a sort of a compelling way of, of, of conveying that truth. And I suppose we can regard the insights that evolutionary psychology offers as further evidence of that. We say, okay, yes, there are things, there is a darkness in the human soul. There are things that we are inclined to do in everything from, yes, from murder to adultery to whatever, all of these things that are forbidden um, within most religious traditions and certainly within Christianity. That doesn't mean that we ought to do them. That means that we need to be constantly vigilant to our own desire to do them and constantly um, self-critical and so on. I know that some atheists will regard that as being a very uh, masochistic way of living your life, you know, to be constantly um, ruminating on your own sinfulness. I think that it's the only way really though to win to, to live your life. I think that being complacent about your own um, unblemished moral record is a fast track way to behaving terribly. So I, yeah, so I, I, I don't disagree with any of these things now. Suppose in that sense, you know, there are there are ways in which um, Christianity and theory of evolution are at odds and obviously historically have been at odds if you have a literal view of the Bible and so on. I don't think that they are on that point. Um, I think that Christians are well aware, I think that, uh, I don't want to say all, but very, very many religious traditions are well aware that humans are flawed and that whoever, whatever God or God's created us, um, they clearly didn't create us as perfect beings um, and of course now you've just opened up the can of worms in terms of you know creation fall redemption restoration where does that's the problem of evil where does evil come from problem of course with an evolutionary psychology is where does good come from and um we have something you know we have to strive to be to be moral and to behave better. And I suppose all that evolutionary psychology does is just give us a greater degree of detail in understanding our own fallen nature. So, um, I mean, I would say that understanding it is, is probably good actually in terms of, I mean, okay, so one example, there's some very interesting research that has been done by evolutionary psychologists and indeed psychologists of other, um, other other forms on uh, female intersexual competition and female aggression towards other women and um, one of the features of female intersexual competition is that we are um, very uh, we often deceive ourselves about the nature of our aggression because the, the because the uh, aggression that uh, uh, female so now this gets into a whole nother aspect of total depravity this this gets into the fact that not only if you want to read a good book on this, you can read, read Neil Plantic is not the way it's supposed to be a breviary of sin. Um, because what, what's funny about us is that we're not, we're not just, we don't just have a tendency to hate God and our neighbor. We have a tendency to turn a blind eye to this aspect of ourselves. Whereas all of humanity might be flawed. I somehow, I'm not saying she's saying this, but I can rise above this. And so I really like this point because she's sort of saying, you know, it'd be easy to just point to men and uh, males and all of our depravity and our depraved ways. But she's saying, yeah, we ladies have our own ways. Malaggression is so often indirect, um, often has deceive ourselves about the nature of our aggression because the, the because the uh, aggression, the uh, uh, female aggression is so often indirect. 
um, often has has to have plausible deniability because sort of the point of it is that it doesn't invite uh, it doesn't invite violence because that's risky. Like women, you know, given um, having young children and everything and being physically smaller and weaker, we don't want to be getting into violent conflicts. So when we are aggressive to other people, we tend to do it in uh, much sneakier ways, and we tend to also do it in such a way that we don't even know always that we're doing it. We can be quite um, oblivious to our own aggression. And I have genuinely found reading about this, it has made me more attentive to my own instincts to be aggressive in that way. Because I'm obviously not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a human being, I'm a woman. I now, now again, because there's, it's this self-transcendence. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. On one hand, we can see this pattern in human beings that we say, no, this is wrong. And then we begin to see this pattern in ourselves. We say, yeah, this is wrong in me. And then you have this capacity to say, to critique this pattern, which means you also at the same time have at least some kind of vision for a way other than which is that which is the default. And so um, actually it was when it, when it was, you know, when I think about a video, because I'd watched this video once, I thought, ooh, I, you know, I didn't really want to bite down too hard on her, you know, that other woman in the tech conference. Uh, I don't think she in any way appreciated the comments I had on her video. I actually, um, I really like Louise Perry's work. I think she's doing incredible work and I actually had far fewer. Um, on second listen through or third listen through, far less critique on this than I did. But the, the reason I'm playing this again is because of this conversation between Mearsheimer and Pinker. Now I'm going to start um, a little ways. Oh shoot, did I lose my place of where I wanted to jump in? I'll have to find it again. Um, no, here it is. Because it's it's actually sort of, I don't know why they chopped this into two separate videos. They're both, neither of them are terribly long, but it's it's chopped into two separate videos and it's about halfway through the second section that in some ways they really get down to brass tacks because it's quite clear that in some they're talking past each other. I think Mearsheimer sees a little bit more clearly where Pinker is coming from, partly because Pinker has written about this so extensively in his books and that makes it easier to sort of have an idea of what he's talking about and get down to it. But again, we're talking about human nature. And what do we mean by human nature? This is sort of the first draft and a, not just a personal first draft but a but see, the whole question about human universals I did a little I did a little interview for a small podcast yesterday and it's difficult to describe where I think things are at and then on CRC Voices, some people gave me some pushback on some of the terms that I used in some of my videos. And on Voices, you can kind of write a little bit longer. And there are a few things that I should comment that often we sort of reduce the Enlightenment to positivism, which is one specific corner. It's kind of an accentuation of, of, of some Enlightenment. But the Enlightenment is broad. Modernity is broad. It's just tremendously difficult talking about these things because they are, in many ways, hyper-objects. We can't really get our... It's difficult to come to terms with them and discuss them with any kind of clarity and specificity. So with these two sort of boring into this thing, it's it's helpful to kind of see where it is. Basically, Mearsheimer says... I don't think you can really do the whole first principles thing by reason. And he basically articulates the point that I made in a previous in a video about if you if you if you dismiss the Bible because there's there's interpretive pluralism, pervasive interpretive pluralism, you have exactly the same problem with reason. Reason isn't sort of arriving at the large outcomes that those who sort of promote reason as a worldview foundation suggest it should. And the fact that Mearsheimer is a political thinker 
and Pinker is sort of a, what is Pinker, kind of an evolutionary psychologist, that kind of thing. Now, I might jump to the beginning of the movie, to the movie, I might jump to the beginning of the video because Pinker in some ways sort of outlines his, his argument for uh, a belief in reason. And, and I think there's some interesting things to point out there, but I think the, the conversation really gets engaged at this point. Liberalism is predicated on the assumption that individuals cannot agree about first principles. They cannot agree about questions of the good life. And sometimes those disagreements are so intense that people kill each other. So liberalism deals with that fundamental set of problems, right, by creating civil society, by giving people room to live life the way they see fit. Liberalism also privileges individual rights. It says that you, Sophie, have the right to live this way. I, John, have the right to live this way. And we can live life the way we see fit in civil society. Furthermore, liberalism preaches tolerance. And the reason that liberalism preaches tolerance is because, again, people can't agree on first principles. So if you and Steve have fundamentally different views on religion, and there's a danger that one of you will kill the other because of that disagreement, what you want to do is inculcate you with tolerance, teach you to tolerate each other's different views. Now, I think that's a super helpful formulation. And I think there's a number of things to point out in that. If you go back to this video that I've played often enough that I don't feel the need to play it, you can find it on the Vanderclips channel of Tim Keller. He uses Roland Williams' um, distinction of procedural, procedural, now I'm going to have to play it. Um, what uh, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, former, Talks of, he calls it programmatic secularism rather than procedural secularism. In other words, it used to be the government was secular in the sense of being a neutral umpire and said, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody has a, a you know level playing field to make your case and, and live your lives. But, but programmatic secularism goes like this. Um, uh, if you, ex well, put it this way. In the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, if somebody wrote a book saying it's okay to be gay, that would probably be not publishable because it would be banned as obscene speech, right? Today, if you say, if you try to write a book or say it's not okay to be gay, now it's also condemned as obscene speech, except it's called hate speech. And what's happened is there was a kind of hegemony, it wasn't pluralistic, there was a kind of nominal Christian hegemony that really did run things. And when when that fell apart, now we realize, well, who's going to get in charge of defining hate speech and obscene speech? And progressives said, we're going to do it. And so what they actually have done is they are imposing a kind of programmatic, uh, hard secularism. And conservatives and Christians have seen that. They say, you know what, you're not being neutral anymore you're really actually pushing, you're really, you're actually saying, you're actually saying you have to keep your religion totally, totally private. Okay, so he's using secularism, and there is, of course, a difference between secularism and liberalism. Secularism is in some ways the, the church of liberalism. It's the child of liberalism. And you can see here, this is procedural, in a sense, what Mearsheim is saying in that Human nature, we, we can't agree on human nature, so what we're going to do is agree on a few separate things that allow us to agree to disagree. And if you go back to that Sarah Hyder video on trigonometry, I mean, she made the comment that there's no agree to disagree in some of these Islamist countries because that's, that, that's a freedom that's not allowed. Now, part of what we've done is we've sort of pulled the frame back and recognized that Agreeing to disagree itself relies upon certain assumptive and presumptive and presuppositional platforms. It's sort of like 
what you recognize with science, that science itself also sits upon certain presuppositions and presumptive past um, platforms. And that this isn't sort of an empty world, that in fact liberalism is an assertion and has to maintain certain assertions if the system is going to work. And part of what those assertions are are a list of things that it's okay to agree to disagree on and things that it's not okay to agree to disagree on. And bumping into a bunch of those things, as we've seen over the last decade, is where we're sort of feeling the edge of liberal secularism. It's sort of like if you're swimming in a body of water and all you've done for a while is any any way that you move you can you can your limbs can move and you can sort of call Marco Polo and you can all kind of hear each other at some point someone bumps into something and if you've ever played Marco Polo in a backyard pool one of the things that you quickly figure out which is one easy way to win Marco Polo is to get out of the pool and that's sort of what's been happening is that we've sort of found the edge of the pool. And, you know, some people are still playing Marco Polo and they're sort of getting people into a corner and they pop out of the pool and they run around in the deck and they jump in the other side. And of course, they don't say polo when they're running around the pool. They say polo after they jump in the water. But of course, the person listening hears the splash and they're like, hey, wait a minute, you were right over here and now you're over there. So... Children's games are the key to everything. And then fundamentals. So if you and Steve have fundamentally different views on religion, and there's a danger that one of you will kill the other because of that disagreement, what you want to do is inculcate you with tolerance, teach you to tolerate each other's different views. And then finally, liberalism privileges the creation of a state to make sure that no single person is in a position to kill another person. But that's what liberalism is all about. It's all about dealing with the fact that there is no consensus. There is no consensus on political and moral questions of the first. Now, that's order. There is no consensus of dealing with moral and political questions. Well, is there no consensus? Because, of course, this emerges itself within a context, and that context was Christendom where you had Protestants and Catholics and they're going at it. And the only thing they could agree on, well, that's not true. There's a lot of things that they could agree on. They both hated the Anabaptists. But, you know, C.S. Lewis makes this one comment at some point. And he says, you know, in reading history, part, part, of what, part of what fascinated him was not so much watching all of the different conflicts, because in many ways, history, the history that we read is sort of this record of all these different contexts. It's what the groups agreed upon beneath the context. And, and that's what really made things interesting because they could be angry and want to kill each other, but there are whole ranges of things that they agreed upon. There are just certain areas of attention, remember attention, that they disagreed on and thought that these things should be ultimate. And that leads us to, again, if there is at least a value hierarchy that the two sides engage in, and if, this is I think part of Miroslav's Wolf's thesis in Exclusion and Embrace, if they can recognize that, the, that some of the things that they agree in are not ultimate, that helps them process the disagreements better or even agree to disagree because there are higher more ultimate things that they agree upon and and religion sort of by definition maintains a lot of these ultimate things you know part of i was i noted in the video one of the videos that i released today on the commenting on the aaron wren video about why are so many people becoming catholic or orthodox and watch that video all to the end um We are, in a, we are in a moment of pretty amazing ecumenism right now, partly sort of just because of the dynamics of resistance, where Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, many of them are sort of united because they see a common foe 
that doesn't identify itself as Christian. Some do, some don't. So this liberal way of dealing with conflict was again back to the Peter Thiel thing. Well, let's we're not going to we're not going to fight about these ultimates. Let's just frame this off and say, you know what? You can be Muslim, you can be Jewish, you can be Protestant, you can be Catholic, you can be Orthodox. Here are the rules of the government. Keep these rules and for the most part, you know, we don't have to kill each other and that's a good thing. So is progress, Steve, really, when it comes down to it, actually just acknowledging that no consensus is really possible. We just have to learn to live and manage these differences as best we can. Is that actually an alternative account of progress? Well, so you could make that argument, but I, my point is just quickly, Steve, I think that's not Steve's definition of progress. Yeah, I think that it's it's a component, that it, but it's not the definition of progress. I would define progress as uh, enhancements in human flourishing. What, what so amazes me about that is that on one hand, I can sort of take a dead reckoning position with respect to human flourishing and say, yeah, there's a way in which for the most part, many of us can agree on human flourishing. But then when you start to really poke at that word, okay, is flourishing having children or not having children? And then you're sort of back in Mearsheimer land because... Well, is it, can you agree to disagree on whether flourishing means having children or flourishing means not having children? You know, I, before this current, we need a name for the, for the drought in, uh, repro the reproductive drought that we're having right now. Um, because again, as a point I made that the droughts don't get names like hurricanes get names generally. They're, they're much broader hyper objects than let's say hurricanes which come in. So the whole, you know, one of the big arguments going around now is, well, is reproductive human flourishing? People say, well, the choice over reproduction is human flourishing. That's not so easy either because and you'll find many people out there that, 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 have, that have stories that go something like this. Well, I didn't really plan on having a child, and I thought seriously about abortion or giving away the child for adoption. But then in the end, I gave birth, and I held the child, and, well, maybe I'll keep her. And now they look back and say to the child, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. Because part of the difficulty of Pinker's world is that we don't know. And the younger we are in many respects, the more we don't know because we just haven't had time or perspective to do it. Now you might say that, well, these are these are elements of human choice. But, you know, I regularly talk to people who look back on their life with a thing called regret. And, and regret is all about having embraced something for the sake of human flourishing only later to realize that they chose poorly. And that might be a menu on a dinner option, or that might be uh, a person that you decided to or not to spend your entire life with. And Mearsheim, in a sense, says, well, we sort of bracket that with tolerance and with freedom and all of these things. And, and that system has worked better. Now, it comes up many times in the conversation that there's a whole lot that the two of them agree upon, which is which is absolutely fine. But part of the problem of what's breaking down is that everybody, more and more people are beginning to realize that the world just isn't as simple as saying, oh, that's about flourishing, that isn't. Now, he can, of course, bring a whole bunch of examples to you, but those, again, tend to be examples that are kind of easy to take. Well... Would you rather have had a um, root canal or not a root canal? Well, but even that, if you've got a toothache, you're probably going to choose the root canal so that you stop having a toothache and you don't have an abscess that's necessarily going to perhaps endanger your health even further. And I gave a list of uh, you know, health, safety, sustenance, um, the, the things that people want for themselves, basically, when, when given. Maybe it's a good time to go back and look at that list. Now, this is the beginning of the conversation. It's interesting because, well, how are we going to talk about this? So you need a frame. 
I mean, it's always the frame problem. Okay, enlightenment, it's way, way too massive, so you need a frame. And, of course, what happens, which sort of jeopardizes the entire thing, is that the frame you use, which is everything that we've talked about on this little corner, the frame you use is a value hierarchy. You're going to use the frame of value in order to evaluate the enlightenment. And what's funny is that people seldom call this out. We associate values such as universal liberty and justice with the enlightenment. Do they harm or hinder the world or do they help the world? Now, Stephen, I'm going to turn to you first. Enlightenment values, what do you think? Thank you. So what are enlightenment values or enlightenment ideals? In a nutshell, I would say it's the ideal that we should use reason to improve human flourishing. Now, what's again, I made this video in my apes video. What, what's so amazing about this point is that it's sort of promoted as a new idea. It's sort of promoted as this is something that we must learn. It's promoted as this, that this isn't the natural way we go about things. This is a way that, you know, was only discovered just a few hundred years ago, and that's the way we pursue it. So you would ask, well, what was functioning before reason? Well, it was, it was what? Well, it was superstition, or it was, and then you have to ask, well, why did superstition develop? And, and why did superstition get overthrown? And, and part of what's going on in cognitive science is the basis that, Reason isn't exactly what it's all cracked up to be. And people are actually really bad at reason. And so if people are bad at reason, why are you promoting it? It's like, you know, if you really want to live longer, you should be healthier. Oh, I, I uh, okay, well, well, how do I do that? And you know, you're going to break it down. Well, should eat right and what is eating right? I mean, one of the most amazing things about the last decade is that we've gotten to the place that we don't, we don't actually know how to feed a human being. <laughs> Some people say, well, it should be carnivore. Some people say, oh, it should be, you know, fruits and vegetables. They're not fruits, too much sugar in those fruits. It should just be vegetables and maybe a little bit of protein. And I mean, I've seen my doctor change his tune on, on what I should eat how many different times, not based on any allergies. I'm not allergic to anything. I like eating almost everything and often a little bit too much of everything. But uh, what do I mean by reason? Well, <clears throat> open deliberation, science, mm. history, evaluation of ideas. And the fruits of reason have been implemented in certain uh, institutions, in particular, liberal democracy, regulated markets, and international institutions. That would be the Enlightenment ideal in a nutshell. What do I mean? I mean by flourishing, well, I mean things that each of us wants for ourselves, and by extension can't deny to others, life, health, sustenance, prosperity, peace, freedom, safety, knowledge, leisure, happiness. Now, the ideals of the Enlightenment are not to be confused with the idea that we should venerate some great men of the 18th century. They were just guys. It's the ideas that count. Uh, and certainly not that we should exalt the West, because the West has always been ambivalent in its commitment to uh, Enlightenment ideals. There are plenty of counter-Enlightenment the themes that have had great influence in the West. Uh, what are the alternatives? Well, of course, there's religion, that we should obey God's commandments and holy scriptures. There and, you know, it's always amazing that that's their definition of religion. And, oh, gosh, I've made this point so often. There is certainly one, again, it's it's the whole idea that the Bible, what the Bible is, it's a set of, it's an, it's an algorithm, it's a set of rules, it's a set of programs. And again, I hear Brett Weinstein talk about this like this, and it's, I, I hear these people and I think, where, where did you learn of this religion? That's never been the religion that I've been a part of. It doesn't mean that there weren't good, bad, right, and wrong and things you should and shouldn't do, but all of those things have been just within an entire within an entire tradition of stories and yeah. this romantic nationalism and authoritarianism that nations embodied in <clears throat> strong leaders should strive for historic greatness there's uh, various forms. so nations with weak leaders should strive to be lousy i mean <laughs> this is this guy i was gonna say this guy teaches at harvard but that's that's fallen on bad times the last few days
was a zero-sum struggle that subjugated victim groups must overcome aggressive, aggressive groups and their reactionary ideologies that we should reject modernity and return to a golden age. Uh, has the Enlightenment worked? Well, we've had a, a quarter of a millennium to find out. We can compare this, what has happened in the last 250 years for the various dimensions of human flourishing. So let's go to the data. Uh, life expectancy worldwide uh, for millennia hovered around 30 years of age. Today, it is more than 70 years. Now, what's really interesting here is, again, if you look a little closer at the data, you'd be like, well, where has this happened and why has this happened? Because on one hand, say, oh, life expectancy went up. Was that our, is that our only measure? She says, no, I'm going to have a few more. But has it gone up in the whole world? Or, well, no, only in certain places that have really practiced the Enlightenment. Oh, tell me about those places. And generally speaking, those places, what, what other variables have these places, have sort of participated in these places? Hmm. When you start looking at some of those other variables, things get a little funny. There's uh, worldwide and uh, more than 80 in developed countries. Child mortality, historically anywhere from a third to a fifth of children died before the age of five. Now it is uh, three-tenths of 1%, but 4% worldwide. Uh, famine was uh, one of the horsemen of the apocalypse and could strike anywhere when there was a crop failure. Today, uh, famines have been decimated and occur only in war zones and in uh, some autocracies. Extreme poverty, uh, 200 years ago, about 90% of the world lived in what we would today call extreme poverty. Today, it's less than 9%. Uh, great power war, the uh, 800 pound gorillas of the day uh, several hundred years ago were pretty much always at war. Today they are never at war. The last uh, great power war pitted the US against China and Korea uh, 70 years ago. Uh, democracy, there used to be a handful of democracies. Now a slight majority of countries are democratic, even with the democratic recession of the last decade or so. Uh, all the great states and empires used to uh, mete out justice by gruesome forms of torture, like crucifixion, breaking on the wheel, disembowelment. But during the Enlightenment, there was a wave of abolitions of judicial torture, including the United States prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, slavery used to be ubiquitous. All the great uh, states and empires practiced it. Starting in the Enlightenment, there was a trickle of abolitions that grew into a flood. Today, slavery is not legal anywhere on Earth. Um, homicide in Europe used to be about 35 per 100,000 per year. In uh, Europe now, it's about one per 100,000 per year. Other parts of the world are more dangerous, but they've also seen declines. Used to be that about 10% uh, of the world was literate a couple of hundred years ago. Now it's closer to 90%, especially if you look at people under the age of, tw of uh, 25. And it used to be that about uh, less than a fifth of the world had a bit uh, basic education. Today, it's uh, almost four-fifths. Okay, so so that's his data. And and again, Mearsheimer and I and many of us will say, yeah, it's, a lot of this stuff is impressive. And I'm, I'm glad I live in the world that I live. I'm glad I live in the place that I live. I'm glad for all of these things, but Mearsheim's going to say, eh, but it, but it is just sort of reason and the ab abolition of religion that because you don't find religion falling at exactly the same rate that all of these things are rising. You don't find religion declining in the places that that these things are rising in in that sense. Health, safety, sustenance. Um, the, the things that people want for themselves, basically, when when given a choice, but the but yes, the disagree the fact of disagreement stemming from the undeniable fact that humans um, uh, are are different both individually and culturally, but nonetheless have to come to working arrangements despite that disagreement. The fact that despite the disagreement, some. Uh, some factual opinions are better than others. We don't know them a priori because we're not, uh, the truth has not been vouchsafed to us from, from, from some deity. It hasn't been stated in the scriptures. We've got to blunder along and discover what the truth is. Uh, likewise, we've got to experiment, blunder uh, to, uh, to find the best 
uh, arrangements for living together. And some of them work better than others in terms of the criteria of enhancing human flourishing. Um, where people will disagree at any given time. But I think it's an exaggeration to say that no one disagrees with, agrees with anyone else uh, on any first principle. If you look at the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, every country, 193 countries agreed on which way the world ought to go. That is, poverty should be reduced, safety should be increased, access to clean water should be uh, increased, child deaths should be decreased, infectious disease should be decreased. There's an awful lot of agreement. And then we can- Well, one of the things that's, a minor, he doesn't, we'll see if he names it here in a minute or two. He keeps pointing to the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And it's like, should, should we tell him? Should we tell him where that comes from? Should we tell him the period of time he might look at 1945 as sort of the height of secularism? 1945 is the height of secularism? I don't think so. It basically comes out of the mainline church in America. Reframe other arguments as what will get us to the state that uh, many of us agree on. Now, again, not everyone. There are some people who have messianic visions that the world is not going to be a great place until everyone obeys all of God's commandments. And if, if, if kids die, so... And what's so amazing is that this is again and again and again his go-to example. This is this is what he's this is what he's sort of fighting against. But if you look at the 20th century, what were the world wars about? Struggle with communism wasn't a war because you know communism had this deity. Nazism. These these aren't. Where's this point? Plus, you've got the fact that all of these Americas, all these Americans and many people in the world have a deity. And a lot of these values that he points to are right in there with the Ten Commandments. It's not like here are the Ten Commandments and here are Pinker's Commandments. It doesn't make sense. So it doesn't matter one way or another. But to the extent that people do agree that babies dying is bad, and you know, by and large they do, then we can, that changes the argument. Do you really want to go there? I mean, I just listened to the Doug Wilson video on the Rob Reiner movie. It's like, baby's dying. Is that really the one you want, the, the illustration you want to point to? From disagreements over first principles to disagreements over means to the end. And even then, if you look at the sustainable development goals, there's an awful lot of agreement over, over things that the world's nations should get together and do. I just don't think, Steve, there's any disagreement on issues of safety, health, and su sustenance. That, that's not the issue. We're talking about moral and political principles here. We're talking about first principles, uh, what comprises the good life. That's where the real disagreement is. Well, wait, I, I, I guess I'm not seeing that. Isn't um, fewer children dying a moral principle? That is that we ought to have fewer children dying. It's good to have fewer people dying. It's evil to let kids die if you can prevent it. It's so funny because, of course, this comes on the heels of a period of time where we believed in overpopulation. And so it's been a bunch of people that have wanted fewer people. Now, again, part of what kind of happens is this imaginative idea of suffering in consciousness. And this is, of course, happening. It's, it's pretty much in the West that you have things like in Canada, um, medical assisted assistance in dying. Um, it's funny that this is the example he keeps pointing out when, in many ways, a lot of the stuff is going in the other direction. No, I think that's so obvious. And and it tends to be the religious people that, that believe that, you know, God has told them what to do are the ones that say, hey, why are you letting these people die? And why are you killing those babies? And why are you... This is not even be interesting. I mean, well, that, but well, wait a second. But then th those are th first principles that everyone agrees on. You didn't need the enlightenment to produce that, right? The argument here is the enlightenment and using our critical faculties changed things. We were finally able to make moral and political progress. I think from time immemorial, people have understood that, you know, young children dying is a bad thing. And what we should do is try and keep them alive for as long as possible. Well, but there was, I mean, we did have things like, you know, slavery and human sacrifice and uh, you know, genocide of other peoples. And we had... Uh... You know, it was really good that in 17th century Europe, they stopped human sacrifice. 
gosh. Yeah, all, those, all that 16th century human sacrifice all over Europe, next to the churches, they had that altar, and there they threw their babies. <laughs> um, you know, praying to avert famine as opposed to developing vigorous hybrids and, and artificial fertilizers and crop rotation. So, that Are you really going to make arguments about certain agricultural... I mean, what's so funny is that these things that he points out to are hugely... And this is part of his argument that there's a lot of question about, okay, we've sort of done these things in order to achieve these other ends, but has it really all been a good? Why, why on earth is everybody in Costco looking for organic this and that? The means to attend uh, to, to attain those differed as well. But even the idea of universal human flourishing, that isn't so obvious. Uh, you know, one could you, you go back into uh, a lot of religious codes, and the idea that every last member of Homo sapiens ought to flourish, you know, off, isn't there. If, if we, I, where's Tom Holland when we need him? Oh, beauty of the internet. Here's Tom Holland when we need him. We've got. We'll start with Gavin at the front here. <clears throat> Questions, not statements. We haven't got much time. Thank you. I want to throw back to Tom a question he once asked me, but I'd like him to answer it. Um, Tom, once we, we had a small discussion, you said the very distinctive thing about... One of the things I learned in England this trip, it's a small country. And in fact, there's a country within a country. There's a reason C.S. Lewis wrote about the inner ring. You look at everybody who went to Oxford. I don't know if Tom Holland went to Oxford or not. Um, I learned a whole bunch of people went to Oxford, and I was at this ARC thing, and it's like, oh, yeah, I went to school with him, I went to school with him, I went to school with him. Boy, this is as bad as the Christian Reformed Church. This is Gavin Ashenden, who, you know, you can follow on, you know, he's not, not a, um, we'll, we'll call him a friend of the corner. The church was, it, as you quite just said, it really does believe in good and evil. It, it's nothing if it doesn't have a metaphysical vision. Um, most of the people here, I think, would, would sign up to that metaphysics. One of the difficulties that we have is persuading a highly secularized society that our metaphysical vision isn't uh, something at the level of, of fairy, Victorian fairy tales. Um, as someone who straddles both worlds, do you have any advice for us in the way in which we can reacquaint our society with the seriousness of, the, of, of what is almost a dualistic metaphysical narrative in order, in, in order to, to catch their imagination sufficiently for us to be able to tell the Christian story with effect? Well, I, I think the key is for people in the West to be culturally humble and to recognize that their values are not universal, as I said. So another one would, would obviously be human rights. Because the West has been so hegemonic for so long, it's been in a position to assume that its concept of human rights is somehow universal. They don't need to think about it. Of course human rights exist. But what the rise of China and of other um, civilizational powers is doing is to remind us that um, the concept of human rights is one that has emerged in a very specific cultural matrix, which is a Christian one. And that therefore, if you want to believe in human rights, you have to believe. It takes a leap of faith to believe that there are things called human rights just as much as it takes a leap of faith to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. They're both beliefs. And the fact that um, you know, most people in the West sign up to the fact that human rights exist and that they're important and that um, they should determine, say, you know, national policy, public policy, um, actually, it's, it's, it's as rooted in, in theology and, and, and myth and metaphysics as, as all the teachings of Christianity. And I think that once that is, once people are reminded of that, I think it becomes impossible not to feel a kind of greater sense of, of, of where, you know, what Christianity is about. Because, you know, if you believe, you know, if you believe in human rights, why not believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead? You might as well hang for a, you know, a sheep as a lamb. Um, I think that it, it reminding people that, 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 that the core beliefs that are fundal, fundamental to how people morally define themselves is rooted in faith, reopens the possibility for secularists 
to recognize that they are not somehow, they have not kind of emancipated themselves from the need for faith. They, they continue to illustrate it. And I think that kind of contemplating that then reopens the possibility to think, well, where might this practice of, 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 of believing in fantastical things lead? But I think one of the things that the churches need to do is to kind of absolutely embrace this rather than being slightly embarrassed about it and only talking about the kind of things that you'd hear on a Liberal Democrat Party political broadcast, <laughs> which is a kind of, you know, thought for the day thing. I mean, I, th I think that thought for the day and, um, you know, the, uh, the kind of religious studies GCSE where you yeah. compare what Buddhists and Muslims think about smoking, that kind of stuff. I think it's absolutely destructive because it just kind of makes everything a mush. I think that the churches have to lay claim to everything that is kind of most, that is weirdest, most countercultural, most peculiar, you know. I, I don't think Steven Pinker's going to have any of that. We have, if we find a lot of these concepts problematic, are there any sort of really viable alternatives? Or actually, are we kind of stuck with trying to to make you know the the sort of enlightenment values as we've been talking about them very broadly um are we stuck with trying to make them work or are there other alternatives well the, the first enlightenment value uh is unfettered reason uh, yeah. unfettered reason is put up on a pedestal i believe that unfettered reason should be put up on a pedestal and I would think that all three of us as academics would agree with that. I think the dispute between me and Steve has more to do with what unfettered reason leads to when it comes to important moral and political questions. But I'm in favor of that. Second sort of principal value of the Enlightenment is the focus on the individual. And I do like individualism. And again, as academics, individualism really matters, uh, as we all know. So I'm not against individualism. But my basic point, uh, as I've emphasized here, is that we are all social animals and that we have to carve out space for our individualism. The fact that you, Sophie, live in Britain and Steve and I live in the United States has an influence on how we think about the world. And in my opinion, that makes it more difficult to reach some sort of consensus, to reach some sort of truth on important political and social values. So I'm, um, I'm of a mixed mind about the individualism, uh, but uh, I do like individualism, but you have to understand that again, we're social animals first and foremost. And then with regard to IR, which was my third point before, uh, I think that we live in a fundamentally competitive world. Uh, states compete with each other in nasty ways often, and sometimes they even fight wars. Uh, and uh, that situation has not changed since the beginning of time, and it's not going to change in the future. And I don't think we've made any progress there, although Steve has a particular argument that I haven't addressed, which I'll leave aside for the moment. Oh, I hate when I forget to unmute the microphone. I was saying that I'm sort of in the same way, individualism. Um, I think most of us who participate in this corner are sort of enjoy our individualism. We don't necessarily fit in. We like our freedoms. And I think where we're at is a recognition, a greater recognition of the fact that many of the goods that we enjoy post-enlightenment are not ultimate goods. And those goods, in fact, have to be nested within other goods. We, and, and I think Mearsheimer has a strong point there in that we are, we tend to enjoy our individuality within a social context. Context, In fact, that, that's often how our individuality is recognized and appreciated. And so when I talk about 
you know, some people pushed back on the term counter-enlightenment. That, of course, was Jordan's framing. And I'm not sure... Again, we're, we're really groping around for the language to use here. Because we're using these tools, which are the best tools we have in some ways, but we're using these tools to try to evaluate a lot of the development that came before any of us were born and the decisions that got built into our institutions and our life and trying to figure out um, how to make things better, what things to get rid of, what things to adjust. That's what we're doing. And yeah, and part of the way we're doing it, we're certainly using reason. But part of it is an understanding that religion is not simply, as Steven Pinker just continues to try to frame it, and, you know, in, in Brett Weinstein's defense, Brett has given more, um, has allowed more respect for religion. But that religion, in fact, is in a sense, religions are the notebooks in which we have been keeping notes with respect to many of these issues. And they're massive and difficult for us to, to grapple with, but, but they are, in fact, there. And so as, as we recognize the limitations of the Enlightenment and its foundations, and again, psychology, cognitive science, many different areas, Peterson, I thought, was, was, was very, very helpful on that. And as we face many others in the world that have basically not been a part of this project, at least not voluntarily. And there are many religious movements and that have emerged to stand against some of what the Enlightenment has brought, sometimes uh, willfully and sometimes accidentally. We're going to continue to sort of sort this out. So anyway, I thought that this was a very interesting debate between these two. And you know, let me know what you think.